From New York, this is Democracy Now! We bet on the people of Pennsylvania, and you didn't let us down. And my promise to all of you is I will never let you down. Thank you, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. Democrats are hoping they can retain control of the Senate after Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, defeats Mehmet Oz, winning a Republican-held seat. This leaves four key Senate races still undecided, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. Republicans were hoping to see a red wave, but even control of the House is up in the air as Democrats outperformed expectations across the country. We'll go to Wisconsin and Georgia for the latest and look at how voters in Vermont, California and Michigan have enshrined abortion rights into their state constitutions. History has been made in Vermont in more ways than one. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Early in the evening, results coming in that Vermont has enshrined not just the right to abortion, but the sweeping right to personal reproductive autonomy into their state constitution. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The balance of power in Congress is still up in the air after Democratic candidates outperformed expectations in much of the country in Tuesday's midterm elections. With ballots still being counted in many key races, it remains unclear which party will control the Senate or the House. In one of the most closely watched Senate races, Pennsylvania Democrat John Fetterman has declared victory over over his Trump-backed challenger, Dr. Mehmet Oz, to fill the Senate seat held by Republican Pat Toomey. Fetterman's election victory came six months after suffering a stroke just before the Democratic primary. He addressed supporters early this morning. I'm proud of what we ran on, protecting a woman's right to choose, raising our minimum wage, Fighting the union way of life. Health care is a fundamental human right. It saved my life and it should all be there for you when you ever should need it. Control of the Senate now rests on four states, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona and New Mexico. In Georgia, it appears increasingly likely the race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker race will go to a runoff. With 95 percent of the vote counted, Warnock is leading with 49.4 percent of the vote, just shy of the 50 percent needed in Georgia to win the election outright. Walker has 48.5 percent of the vote. Warnock spoke to supporters early this morning. Well, uh, good evening, Georgia. Or or maybe I should say good morning. Here's where we are. We, We are not sure if this journey is over tonight or if there's still a little work yet to do. But here's what we do know. We know that when they're finished counting the votes from today's election, that we're going to have received more votes than my opponent. We know that. 
Again, control of the Senate now rests in four states, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona and Nevada. In Wisconsin, Republican Senator Ron Johnson is in the lead over Wisconsin's Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, but the race is still too close to call. In Nevada's Senate race, Republican Adam Laxalt is leading Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, with 75 percent of the vote counted. In Arizona, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly has a six-point lead over his Trump-backed challenger Blake Masters, with two-thirds of the vote counted. In other key Senate races, in Ohio, Republican J.D. Vance defeated Democrat Tim Ryan, while in New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan beat her far-right challenger General Don Bulldog. As for the House, more than 70 races have yet to be called, but many analysts are predicting Republicans will flip the House, but just by a small margin. One prominent Republican incumbent who might lose her seat is Lauren Boebert in Colorado. Early this morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said House Democratic candidates are, quote, outperforming expectations. In other key races, Florida governor and possible Republican 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis easily won re-election. In Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp defeated Democrat Stacey Abrams. In Pennsylvania's governor's race, Democrat Josh Shapiro trounced Doug Mastriano, the far-right election denier backed by Trump. In Wisconsin, Democratic Governor Tony Evers has been reelected, while Republican state lawmakers in Wisconsin appear to have fallen short in their effort for a supermajority. Here in New York, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul has defeated her Trump-backed challenger, Lee Zeldin. Hochul, who took office after Andrew Cuomo resigned, became the first woman elected as governor in New York. Massachusetts will also soon have its first woman governor with the election of Democrat Maura Healey. She'll also become the nation's first openly lesbian governor. In Vermont, Becca Bailent has made history by becoming the first woman and first openly LGBTQ plus candidate in Vermont to be elected to Congress. Bailent was elected to the House to fill the seat held by Peter Welch, who was elected to the Senate to replace Patrick Leahy. In Maryland, voters elected Democrat Wes Moore, who will become Maryland's first black governor. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Democrat Katie Hobbs is leading in the governor's race against Republican Carrie Lake. In Arizona's closely watched Secretary of State race, Democrat Adrian Fontes is leading over Mark Fincham, one of numerous Republican election deniers running to oversee elections. CNN reports election deniers won Secretary of State races in Alabama, Indiana, South Dakota and Wyoming. One of Tuesday night's big winners was abortion rights. Vermont, Michigan and California all voted to enshrine the right to an abortion in their state's constitutions. In Kentucky, voters rejected a ballot measure that sought to amend the state constitution to say there is no right to abortion. State lawmakers have already passed a near-total ban on abortion in Kentucky, but the measure would have made challenging the ban even more difficult. In Montana, with over 80 percent of votes counted, it appears voters will reject a ballot measure which would establish that infants born alive at any stage of development are legal persons and criminalize health care providers. 
Meanwhile, voters in Maryland and Missouri voted to legalize recreational marijuana, while similar proposals failed in Arkansas and North Dakota. Several states had measures related to slavery on the ballot. Voters in Tennessee, Alabama and Oregon and Vermont backed removing language from their constitutions that allows slavery as punishment. But in Louisiana, two-thirds of voters rejected a proposal that would have barred slave labor in prisons. In voting rights, Connecticut passed a measure allowing in-person early voting, and Michigan approved several pro-democracy measures, including opening polls for early voting and ballot drop boxes. But in a blow for voting rights, Nebraskans overwhelmingly supported requiring a photo ID to vote, and Ohio voters chose not to let residents who are not U.S. citizens cast ballots in local elections. Maine's largest city of Portland and Evanston, Illinois, have both backed measures to use ranked-choice voting in city elections. In Nevada, a ballot measure to allow for open primaries and ranked-choice voting has not been called yet, though yes votes lead by three percentage points. In labor news, Washington, D.C. approved Initiative 82, which phases out tipping and raises the minimum wage for tip service workers from $5.35 an hour to $16.10 an hour by 2027. At the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, several European nations, including Ireland and Denmark, made modest pledges to fund loss and damage for poorer nations that are bearing the brunt of the climate disaster. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, endorsed the move to include loss and damage as part of global efforts to combat climate change. Notably silent on the issue was the United States. Harjeet Singh from the Climate Action Network said, quote, the U.S. has for decades acted in bad faith with regard to loss and damage, but the delays and deception of real-life consequences the U.S. needs to change from being obstructive to constructive, he said. A new U.N.-backed report says the Global South needs at least $2 trillion a year to fight the climate crisis, and that half of that should come from rich countries, investors and multilateral development banks. Meanwhile, some island nations, which are among the most vulnerable to climate change, have proposed a windfall tax on oil companies. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley called for a 10 percent tax on oil companies. She spoke at COP27 Tuesday. They wipe out events that are, are a risk for us as small states become a serious concern. We make the point all the time that large countries can be the subject of a climatic event and still survive. Small states do not have that luxury. And for many of us, the risk of a wipeout event is simply too great for us to carry. As official meetings and speeches continue at COP27, pressure is mounting for the Egyptian government to take action as political prisoner human rights activist Ala Abdel Fattah remains on a complete hunger and water strike. He stopped drinking water on Sunday. On Tuesday, UN's head of human rights warned his life is in great danger. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz also addressed the issue Tuesday. 
Das ist sehr bedrückend zu sehen. It is very depressing to see how a human life is at risk and the hunger strike has now entered a stage where we all have to fear that this will really lead to quite a dreadful consequence. That is why I and I know many other heads of state and government have raised this issue specifically. A decision needs to be taken. A release has to be made possible so that it doesn't come to it that the hunger striker dies. On Tuesday, Egyptian lawmaker Amr Darwish confronted Al Abdel Fattah's sister, Sana Saif, as she spoke to the press at COP. He asked Sana Saif, quote, are you here inciting foreign countries to put pressure on Egypt before being removed from the event by security? President Biden is meeting later this week with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He's expected to raise human rights with Sisi. It's not clear if he will explicitly discuss Allah Abdel Fattah. The United States and Russia have agreed to resume talks under the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START. The meetings have been on hold since before Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The only remaining nuclear treaty between the countries limits the number of deployed strategic nuclear warheads for each country as a deterrent to a new arms race and nuclear war. In Russia, the American WNBA star Brittany Griner is being transferred to a penal colony. The process could take up to two weeks. Her lawyers say they don't know where she will end up. Greiner was sentenced to nine years in prison for bringing a small amount of cannabis oil in her luggage into Russia. In Syria, a new report by Doctors Without Borders is denouncing the horrific conditions faced by refugee children at the overcrowded Al-Hol camp, describing it as a massive open-air prison and a death camp. Al-Hol is located in the northeast near the border with Iraq, houses about 60,000, mostly women and children, many younger than 12 years old. Refugees at Al-Hol say violence is intensified between armed groups and security forces and report arbitrary detentions, theft and extortion, rampant medical neglect. The report said some children died from prolonged delays in accessing urgent medical care. Young boys at the camp are also reportedly being forcibly taken from their mothers once they reach around 11 years old, never to be seen again. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, is laying off more than 11,000 workers, reducing its workforce by 13 percent. CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced the mass firings early today, blaming declining ad revenue and profits. It's the latest hit for tech workers after Twitter's new billionaire owner, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, last week fired nearly 4,000 employees, half of Twitter's workforce. <clears throat> Florida is bracing for Tropical Storm Nicole, which is expected to make landfall late tonight or early Thursday north of West Palm Beach as a Category 1 hurricane. With torrential rain and damaging winds, many residents are still reeling from the destruction left by Hurricane Ian in October. And in Mexico, anti-corruption officials are investigating the attorney general's office in the state of Morelos, accusing it of covering up the femicide of 27-year-old Adriana Lopez, whose body was found by a highway last week. Morelos officials claim Lopez had died of alcohol intoxication. But during a news conference Monday, Mexico City's mayor, Claudia Scheinbaum, presented the results of a second autopsy that found Lopez had actually died of multiple forced trauma. Scheinbaum also played security footage of a man in an apartment building, parking garage, carrying a body, which Scheinbaum alleged was Adriana Lopez. Last year alone, there were over 1,000 femicides reported in Mexico. This is activist Karina Vada. 
We ask the authorities to work and give accurate, substantive results. We do not want declarations or statements. We demand justice and dignity. The state is femicide and re-victimizes with its actions. Its omissions build the path of impunity that our aggressors enjoy. The community is an accomplice. Men take our lives. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to Wisconsin and Georgia for the latest news and look at how voters in Vermont, California and Michigan have enshrined abortion rights in their state constitution. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, the balance of power in Congress is still up in the air after Democratic candidates outperformed expectations in much of the country in Tuesday's midterm election. With ballots still being counted in many key races, it remains unclear which party will control the U.S. Senate or the House. Control of the Senate now rests on four states—Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada— after Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, pulled off a major victory in Pennsylvania's Senate race, defeating Dr. Mehmet Oz for the seat currently held by Republican Pat Toomey. Fetterman addressed supporters this morning. We bet on the people of Pennsylvania, and you didn't let us down. And my promise to all of you is I will never let you down. Thank you, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. In Georgia, it appears increasingly likely the race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will go to a runoff. In Arizona, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly has a six-point lead over his Trump-backed challenger Blake Masters, with two-thirds of the vote counted. In Nevada's Senate race, Republican Adam Laxalt is leading Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto with three-quarters of the vote counted. And in Wisconsin, Republican Senator Ron Johnson is in the lead over Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, but the race is still 
too close to call. We're going to begin today's show in Wisconsin to talk about Tuesday's Senate races and much more with John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, John. Um, you are joining us from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, talk about this key race, what we know so far, and who these candidates are. Of course, one, the incumbent, Ron Johnson, the other, Lieutenant Governor uh, Mandela Barnes. Well, it's easy to say that Matt, Ron Johnson is the most controversial and scandal-plagued member of the United States Senate, although he certainly has competition. Uh, Johnson has, uh, especially over the last six years since uh, Donald Trump came on the scene, identified as one of the most Trump-aligned members of the Senate. And he's also been uh, someone who's caused a lot of controversy because of uh, conspiracy theory-like statements about uh coronavirus, about vaccines, things of that nature. And, of course, he was drawn into the January 6th controversy because there was a moment on January 6th where apparently he was talking with uh, folks outside of his office about delivering lists of fake electors to Vice President Mike Pence. The vice president obviously said no, and that didn't go forward. But as you can see, when you put all these pieces together, Johnson was someone who uh, appeared to be a pretty easy target. Uh, in this election cycle. And then there's also the fact that he acknowledged that he's, since coming to the Senate, doubled his own wealth. Uh, and so uh, Democrats were very enthusiastic about putting somebody up against him. Uh, the winner of a crowded Democratic primary was Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. And Barnes ran uh, what I would argue was a pretty remarkable campaign based on uh, his deep ties to Milwaukee, the fact that he comes from a uh, union family, his grandfather, a steel worker, his father, and yet an auto workers member, his mother, a union teacher, uh, and his own service as a state legislator and then lieutenant governor. Um, so his campaign was, was a very strong one. Unfortunately, in September and early October, uh, very, very wealthy uh, Republican donors, as well as the Republican uh, Senate campaign committee, moved immense amounts of money into the state. They overwhelmed Barnes with a multi-million dollar advertising campaign that was uh, by any means uh, and by any standard untruthful. Uh, it was widely decried as racist because the ads identified Mandela Barnes, uh, the first African-American candidate for the United States Senate of a major party in Wisconsin as dangerous and different and using all sorts of other uh, code words. Uh, and so that put Barnes down a little bit in the race. He was down at one point in a major poll by about six points. But some very strong debate performances in mid to late October, I think an appearance by Barack Obama on his behalf, and just incredibly hard campaigning by Mandela Barnes brought him back into the running uh, to this position where we're at now, which is a very close race. Johnson is ahead. We don't know all that's out yet. It won't be a lot. Uh, and so Johnson has the advantage. But Barnes could, it is theoretical, could still close this gap. And, John, what do we know about the, the turnout, how it compares, for instance, to, to the 2018 midterms and and also who came out? What what sections of the of the state or or, or what demographic groups? Yeah, turnout was very strong. Uh, in fact, uh, early voting, uh, which is obviously a, a measure that usually is seen as at least somewhat favoring the Democrats, 
was up 35 percent. Uh, and that's that's a huge spike in early voting. But on Election Day, what was very striking was the heavy turnout on campuses around the state. Mandela Barnes uh, was a young candidate. He's in his mid-30s. Uh, he focused a lot of his attention on the campuses. And also last week, late last week and into the weekend, Senator Bernie Sanders came into Wisconsin and appeared on four college campuses in Eau Claire, La Crosse, Madison, and then near the campus up in Oshkosh uh, to rally students. And there are videos from uh, some of these campuses of incredibly long lines of students showing up on Election Day. And we'll get the final measures of all this. But uh, it does look like Mandela Barnes uh, benefited at the close by uh, a, a bump in youth turnout, uh, as well as some incredibly hard work that he and a number of other groups did in Milwaukee to bump uh, black turnout, Latinx turnout. And uh, so I, I do think that that gap was closed by a, a, a quite successful mobilization. The final thing I'll tell you is that in Dane County, the Madison area, which is really the heartland for a lot of progressive voting in Wisconsin, uh, you saw a great increase in turnout um, at one point, And I don't know what the final number will be, but at one point they were talking of a turnout uh, well above 80 percent. And that was certainly beneficial to Barnes. And, John, could we switch over to Nevada, which uh, there's there's increasing sense that this will be a Republican pickup in the Senate race, possibly as well in the governor's race. Could uh, Nevada was a state that uh, increasingly the labor movement has played a key role. What, from your sense, has happened there? Well, a lot of things happen in Nevada. And remember, we don't have the, the final results there. And, and we should always be careful because uh, Nevada can surprise you at the end. Uh, in fact, it has in, in recent years. Uh, but at this point, you're right. Republicans appear to have the advantage in the key statewide races. And uh, these races ended up closer than expected, I think, because the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas really put on a major final push. But it didn't it doesn't appear at this point, to have closed the gap. Why? Look, Nevada is a state, and Las Vegas especially, a place which really kind of rises and falls in many senses with the economy. And we've seen inflation a huge issue in Nevada. And it was, frankly, a hard issue for the Democratic candidates in that state. Uh, this is true, I, I think, in general for the Democratic Party nationally. And it's an important thing to understand. Uh, while the Democrats did far better on Tuesday night than expected, they never really developed uh, an effective message on what came out as the number one issue in most exit polls, and that was inflation. And the challenge there was that instead of focusing on price gouging, instead of focusing hard on, on corporate uh, irresponsibility in this state, in this case, uh, they had more of a vague message. And I think that uh, that that prevented Democrats from potentially having an even better night on, on Tuesday, not just in Nevada, but in a number of states across the country. John Nichols, we want to thank you for being with us, the nation's national affairs correspondent, as we turn now to Georgia, where it appears increasingly likely the race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will go to a runoff. 
So 95 percent of the vote has been counted. Warnock is leading with 49.4 percent of the vote, just shy of the 50 percent needed in Georgia to win the election outright. Walker has 48.5 percent of the vote. Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, spoke to supporters early this morning. Well, Good evening, Georgia. Or, or maybe I should say good morning. Here's where we are. We, we are not sure if this journey is over tonight or if there's still a little work yet to do. But here's what we do know. We know that when they're finished counting the votes from today's election, that we're going to have received more votes than my opponent. We know that. So we're joined now by Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter Fund, speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Talk about what's happened in your state. I think what we see happen in the state is we are at, find ourselves at this runoff because it's a very, very tight, a tight race, which we anticipated. I don't think there were any big surprises um, in this particular race, you know, I think that there was um, a, a, a disappointment for many around in the loss in the governor's race um, in, the, in the governor's race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. You know, but ultimately what I think is there's no big surprises in terms of we expected this to be a tight race. It's unfortunate um, that we're now pushed in a runoff uh, because with with candidates that I think are starkly and distinctively different. You know, I think part of what we we've been saying it for probably about um, we've been saying it for over a year. But voter suppression has had an impact in this election. Uh, yes, where it has been where we saw early vote turnout. When we look at what has happened, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. We look at SB 202, which was the law that was passed in Georgia um, immediately after the 2021 election. What you saw, there was a number of things that have been put in place. One of those was really around restricting access to um, um, mail-in ballots. And so what we saw is we saw a drastic drop. It went from mail-in ballots were 1.2 million mail-in ballots last election and went down to 0.2 million. So that means a million mail-in ballots, a million people did not access or utilize mail-in ballots. And I think that that's had an impact um, on the, the race as well. But we knew that this was a critical race a lot of money was poured in. You could not you could not turn your television on and you were not seeing commercial after commercial after commercial uh, with Herschel Walker. I think there's another thing that we can actually take from this as well, that Herschel Walker is out of, of the candidates, was probably one of the weakest candidates in the country. And so there's this question around, well, why is he performing that the way? Because I think this was a, we have to really recognize this was a strategy. This was someone who was actually picked out of Texas um, the, the, the Republican Party recruited him, moved him to Georgia, and literally ran his, and, and came around his campaign. It didn't matter what negative information came out. It didn't matter what factual information to come out around his ability, a lack of ability to be able to serve. This was really around pure raw power and literally operating in a way that we're seeing um, we're going into this, 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 uh, this, this election, this runoff election. And could you talk a little more about the uh, gubernatorial race and the uh, the difference in the vote for Stacey Abrams versus uh, uh, Raphael Warnock uh, in uh, among Democrats uh, and the general electorate? 
You know, there were there were two, I think, phenomenals that um, uh, phenomena that, that in consideration, Warnock was able to capture uh, votes, particularly white votes that Stacey Abrams was not uh, was not able to capture. Uh, in addition to that, there so there was a broke of a vote spread between both of their candidacies. And then when you look at um, what what's interesting in many of the rural areas and some of the rural areas, uh, Warnock actually outperformed um, Stacey Abrams in many of the rural areas. Some of that, I think that he had a campaign that literally focused on um, around what the economic implications of his seat would have to the state. And I think that that actually resonated with some people. I also think that he had a message around, I think that there was a, while, while Herschel Walker um, overwhelmingly got Republican support, I think that there were some moderate Republicans that it was just too much for them that that his candidacy was just too much for them. And I think that that Warnock was able to actually uh, build on that and really be able to um, coalesce around that he was a stronger, more viable candidate and would be able to get some things done. And so as a result, I think what you see is you see this vote spread difference. And I think it's part of it's because of not only just who the candidates are, but literally around how those seats were perceived by voters in the state of Georgia. And I think and, and he was able to get some Republican or some moderate voters to actually vote um vote for him so what we saw is we saw uh going into the runoff we see is as a split ticket that people actually voted for brian kemp and they voted for warnock so there were were uh, thousands of votes that he was able to capture um in a split ticket i wanted to turn to stacey abrams the voting rights activist the gubernatorial candidate conceding last night i am here because this is a moment where despite every obstacle, we are still standing strong and standing tall and standing resolute and standing in our values. And we know Georgia deserves more. And whether we do it from the governor's mansion or from the streets, whether we do it from the Capitol or from our communities, we are going to fight for more for the state of Georgia. Your final thoughts, Latasha Brown, on where Georgia goes from here. It is hard to believe that we're seeing a replay of two years ago. While Stacey Abrams didn't win, and again, she this was a rematch for her against Brian Kemp, um, December 6th would be, if there is a runoff, if Warnock doesn't hit 50, will be the day of the final election between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, the whole country then. You talk about the ads now. Can you imagine the amount oh, of money goodness. that's going to pour in, because this could determine uh, the balance of the U.S. Senate? Yeah. You know, I think that there are three points that I want to raise. One, in terms of Stacey Abrams, let's be clear, they're part of the pathway that was opened up for us to have a Senator Warnock in position and Ossoff was actually laid out of the infrastructure that Stacey Abrams helped to build in the state. And so part of while she did not capture the seat last night, she has certainly forever shifted the political landscape in the state of Georgia. And so I commend her for that. I think she ran a strong, credible campaign. There are many obstacles along the way. I think one of the things that Brian Kemp was able to do um, in some ways, I think even quite um, Effectively, he was able to rebrand himself as if he was different, that he was a moderate Republican and that brand himself in the context of separating that I was a person that stood up against Trump. And so he didn't have the weight of the Trump factor as some of the other Democrats, I mean, some of the other Republicans had. And I think that that worked in his favor. I think the third thing to really look at around, even as we're going forward, and I think something that she said is that the state of Georgia, what we saw happen in 2020 and 21, you know, with the state as we're seeing a purple state or a state that is actually changed 
changing, that we're in the middle of a transition, that it wasn't a fluke. That is the future of Georgia. As we are, yes, we are going to, this is a hard campaign. It is very tight as we anticipated, but it's absolutely been a shift in the state state of Georgia. And part of that is has really, um, um, Stacey Abrams has been partly responsible for that, responsible for that. I wanted to go to Ohio right now, back to John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent, from Wisconsin to J.D. Vance's victory over the congressman Tim Ryan. How surprised were you, and what do you think was at stake in Ohio, this um, taking a Republican seat, uh, keeping it in Republican hands, as Senator Portman? A great deal was at stake in Ohio. There's no question of that, because uh, Democrats were looking to pick up uh, at least two seats uh, on Tuesday so that they could expand their majority in the Senate to a point where they wouldn't have to deal with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who have been uh, barriers in many cases to advancing the Democratic agenda. And Ohio emerged late in the campaign as a place where it looked like that might have been possible because of a very effective economic populist campaign by Tim Ryan. But the thing to understand about Ohio and Florida, two states that produced very significant Republican results on, on Tuesday night, is that these traditional battleground states uh, have increasingly become Republican states. Uh, and the wins in Florida for the Republicans were striking. And frankly, in Ohio, uh, the Republicans held a, a lot of their strength throughout the state. Ohio saw some, some victories for Democrats, particularly Marcy Captor's win up in Northwest Ohio, a really quite remarkable victory in a district that they had sought to gerrymander her. But on balance, the Democrats still have an immense amount of rebuilding to do in Ohio. And that Ohio result, it certainly looks like it has cost them the ability to claim two seats, a two-seat advance. Now, their hope, obviously, as we talked about a moment ago, is that Mandela Barnes might be able to pull it out in Wisconsin, uh, and that's something we're going to keep an eye on. And then the other, the other thing that we're also going to be keeping an eye on now, because Ohio wasn't a win, is going to be those two Western seats uh, in Arizona and Nevada. If Democrats were to win both of those, they'd still be very well positioned. They would have an advance into a clearer majority. If they lose one of them, then, as we were just talking about, that Georgia runoff becomes a definitional contest. So losing Ohio was a big loss for Democrats. John Nichols. And, and, oh, go ahead. John, I, yeah, I just want to ask, John, you mentioned gerrymandering. We often uh, we too often forget that the uh, many of these lines were redrawn uh, and uh, and Republicans clearly had an advantage in terms of the number of of states that they controlled in terms of re, uh, of redistricting. How do you. How do you get a sense of how redistricting has played uh, in terms of uh, the the potential, the possibility or the likelihood that Republicans will end up controlling the House? It's huge. And I think this is something that people need to understand. Uh, we have a system in the United States where politicians pick their voters. The voters do not, uh, you know, are not given the opportunity to have fair district lines where they can have real competition. This benefited the Republicans in a number of states. In fact, uh, had you had fair maps across the country, the 2022 midterm election cycle would have been a very, very different competition. It wouldn't have had throughout much of that cycle the assumption of Republican wins, especially in House races, because you would have had much more comp competitive uh, contests. So gerrymandering is a big factor. And I can tell you, 
that um, this is something that Democrats have got to focus on going forward because they lost a number of seats this time around that, you know, with a fair map, even perhaps with the lines that you had had in 2018, they probably would have won. In New York, it was the Democrats' fault. They so overreached. They could determine in a very Democratic state that the House goes Republican because of what they did and then a judge pushing back. That's right. And remember, when we talk about gerrymandering, both parties do it. That's something that has to be understood. It's just that in 2022, at the end of the day, the gerrymandering tended to be, I think, a little more beneficial to the Republicans. And if the Republicans take the House by a handful of seats, I think we're going to be able to point to gerrymandering as a factor in their ability to to claim that victory. Well, John Nichols of The Nation, thanks so much for being with us from Madison, Wisconsin, and Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund from Atlanta, Georgia. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, and at least four of the five states where reproductive rights were on the ballot, voters supported protecting the right to abortion and rejected new restrictions. On our election night special Tuesday, Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent the nation. I began by asking her about Vermont becoming the first state to enshrine abortion rights in its constitution. History has been made in Vermont in more ways than one. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Early in the evening, results coming in that Vermont has enshrined not just the right to abortion, but the sweeping right to personal reproductive autonomy into their state constitution. And that includes the right to access birth control, the right to access or to refuse sterilization, you know, because of this robust and long and and tragic history of forced sterilization of women of color, of people of color in this country. And it includes the right to be pregnant and have support when you want to be pregnant and to have an abortion when you want to have an abortion. This is the first time we have seen a state proactively enshrine that right into a constitution. I mean, think about what a different place we would be in, right, if that was enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. Two other states are considering similar measures. And, you know, it's early on, but I would predict because abortion is such a popular issue, I think Michigan and California, the other two states, are likely to pass these similar measures to enshrine this robust right to reproductive autonomy into their state constitutions. Of course, the state where it matters the most is Michigan, because Michigan has a 1931 abortion ban still on the books. It's been held up by a court, so it's not in effect. The Democratic governor, who's currently in place, of course, Gretchen Whitmer, doing everything in her power to try to save abortion access in her state. But it would be a hugely powerful and consequential message if the people of Michigan voted in favor of this constitutional amendment that's on the ballot there. So those are three that I'm watching very closely. And then we have Kentucky, Amy, and I am just obsessively refreshing the results right now, waiting to see if this race is going to be called. Kentucky, one of the reddest states in the country, a state that is already living under an abortion ban, right, has on the ballot an anti-abortion measure similar to the one that we saw in Kansas over the summer that would um, sort of make permanent the existing abortion ban in the state by saying there is no right to abortion in the Kentucky state constitution. And it looks like voters there are rejecting this measure. I mean, early results are showing a pretty resounding rejection of this anti-abortion amendment 
in deep red Kentucky. The nation's abortion access reporter Amy Littlefield, former Democracy Now! producer, referenced the Michigan Proposal 3 enshrining a constitutional right to reproductive freedom. The New York Times' latest update is that with 84 percent of votes counted, the measure is ahead with 55 percent of the vote. Meanwhile, Protect Kentucky Access, which worked to defeat Kentucky's proposed anti-abortion amendment, called the win historic and said in a statement, quote, not only does it represent a win against against government overreach and government interference in the people of Kentucky's personal medical decisions. It represents the first time so many different organizations have come together with such an intense, single-minded purpose to defeat a threat of this magnitude." Unquote. Also on Democracy Now!'s election night special, Juan and I spoke to former Labor Secretary Robert Reich about the next steps for President Biden if the Republicans do take control of the House. There are some people who say uh, that the Democrats need to compromise more with Republicans. Uh, well, uh, you know, the days of compromising have to be over. There, there's no compromising with authoritarianism or proto-fascism. Uh, there's no halfway point uh, between democracy and uh, the authoritarianism we, we are seeing uh, with the Republican Party now, which is becoming the party of authoritarianism. Uh, I don't think the Democrats should uh, attempt to compromise. I think the Democrats have got to stand for uh, labor, jobs, working people, um, the the abandonment of the working class by the Democratic Party uh, to a large extent over the past 40 years has been a huge problem, not only for the Democratic Party, but for uh, the country as a whole. Robert Reich, if, as, is, as seems likely, although we, we don't know for sure, that, uh, that the Democrats lose control of the, of the House, uh, possibly even the Senate, what do you envision— uh, uh, that a President Biden should do in the next uh, two years uh, to be dealing with uh, uh, opposition control of the uh, of the Congress. Well, his veto pen is going to be very, very active. Uh, I think he's going to be if uh, the Republicans take control over Congress, or even if they uh, take control over over one House of Congress, uh, he's got to be uh, very. Uh, careful uh, to push back as hard as he possibly can. Uh, what I expect, the first thing we are likely to get, if Republicans control the House, uh, uh, is a, an attempt to use the uh, raising of the debt ceiling uh, as a, a way of forcing the administration's hand uh, to do a lot of things that the Republican Party would like to do for its patrons uh, in corporate America uh, and in the moneyed interest class, uh, such as uh, reducing taxes further, such as providing even more uh, rollbacks of regulations. Uh, and I think that uh, what the administration has got to be very clear about is that there is going to be no compromising on the debt ceiling. Uh, we're not going to have a repeat of 2011. Uh, we're not going to allow the Republicans to use that debt ceiling fight as a way of gaining leverage when they know they, they're not going to have the ability uh, to override a veto. That's former Labor Secretary Robert Reich speaking on Democracy Now!'s midterm election night special Tuesday night early in the evening before we had many results back. When we come back, we're going to Amy Allison, president and founder of She the People. Among the 
wins we're going to talk about with her are Summer Lee in Pennsylvania, a Democratic socialist who took on not only the Republicans, but the Democratic establishment. Stay with us. Tears by the weekend. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. On Tuesday night in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, State Representative Summer Lee, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America who ran on the Democratic ticket, won her race to replace retiring Democratic Congress member Mike Doyle. The race confused many voters because Summer Lee's Republican opponent has the same name as the Democratic congressman who's retiring. Mike Doyle. In fact, one of his last ads was, a name you can trust, and he rarely identified himself as Republican. Summerlee also faced a flood of opposition and funding from APAC, millions of dollars put in against her. This is Summerlee addressing supporters Tuesday night. It looks like, it looks like we won an election year. We believed in you all because when we were up against a wall, every single time when it looked like it was getting bleak, we had friends come from all over. When we got into the name confusion and people started wondering what's going on, we had friends come up. When APAC dropped another million dollars in the last week, just to send a message and just to try to demoralize us. Our movement didn't sit down. We stood up and we fought back. That's Summer Lee speaking at her victory party Tuesday night in Pittsburgh as she becomes the Congress member-elect for Pennsylvania, the first African-American congresswoman to represent Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, in Illinois, State Rep Delia Ramirez made history as the first Midwestern Latina elected to the U.S. Congress. For more on these and other races, we're joined in Oakland, California, by Amy Allison, president and founder of She the People. It's great to have you back with us after we had a late night with you on our midnight special. Um, talk you. first about Summerlay. 
But, you know, what what we should know about Summer Lee is, first and foremost, she's a movement organizer. She comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement. And when she ran uh, years ago for state legislature, she displaced a moderate a white guy, Dem, who wasn't serving uh, Pittsburgh in an environment in Pennsylvania where uh, the black and brown vote hadn't been fully uh, utilized and engaged in order to build power. She set about doing just that. And she faced stiff opposition. Uh, as she mentioned in her speech last night, um, among uh, those who uh, ran ads and tried to derail her both in the primary and in the general, APAC's last-minute uh, ads attacking her attempted to demoralize and silence her, uh, but her organizing skills really came through. Um, and what's really interesting about Summer Lee, who is unabashedly a advocate for gender justice. She talked about housing. She talked about reproductive justice. She talked about criminal uh, justice reform, and she didn't back away from any of those things, um, leaned into it, organized her set of voters and uh, had a victory. And, you know, the thing is, people are looking at the statewide uh, uh, victory of Fetterman, uh, Senator-elect, and they're saying, wow, that's surprising, but it isn't. When we think about uh, there was a surge in early voting of women in Pennsylvania, a lot of that fueled by organizers and local elected officials like Helen Ginn, who's on the Philadelphia City Council. Statewide, we were seeing that the ability to turn out women and in, in the uh, most of the Democrats in that state a uh, large percentage are women of color who are uh, Democratic Party loyalists and really uh, progressive voters. So that capacity to be able to turn out voters in Pittsburgh that the Congresswoman-elect Summer Lee demonstrated, I think when the dust settles, will show to have contributed to the statewide Senate win and the possibilities for Democrats to govern more effectively in this next phase. Uh, very excited about her uh, and the leadership that she's going to uh, demonstrate even as a freshman congresswoman uh, in Washington, D.C. And could you talk to us also about uh, other key races that you were following that you think are bellwethers? And and also, if you could talk about the race, the municipal race uh, in Los Angeles that has national ramifications, Karen Bass, uh, the the progressive there running for mayor of Los Angeles. But it's uh, it's a very tight race there. It is a tight race. You would think in a state like California, who has a reputation for being a solid blue Democratic stronghold, uh, that a former Republican and a person who had fueled and funded so many Republicans in his past would be uh, have, you know, be in this tight race with uh, Karen Bass, who uh, you know, it was the former head of the Congressional Black Caucus, was a very well-known housing activist locally in Los Angeles and is widely respected. But the fact of the matter is you got Caruso, who, uh, you know, is a billionaire and spent so far at last account $150 million of his own money to buy up the airways in the nation's number one media market uh, to uh, attempt to buy the election. Meanwhile, uh, Karen Bass, who is the candidate who speaks to uh, working people's concerns, particularly around housing in Los Angeles, uh, has made her case. But it is a tough race. And the bellwether there is, 
are we going to see in a state like California, a billionaire who uh, can claim uh, and change his party registration or is try to wear some uh, different political stripes at the last minute to be able to uh, claim the seat. Los Angeles is a very wealthy and very, very important uh, local um, municipality in, in this country. So the bellwether is that. Um, I'm also looking at another California race. Malia Cohen was the seventh Black woman to serve in an executive office. She won controller in California. California is the fourth largest economy in the world, and she writes the checks. This is significant because she bested a Republican who uh, was not committed to choice in the way that California will be funding uh, clinics as a place where uh, women from surrounding states will go to have reproductive uh, services. So this is a very, very important race as well. And then turning toward uh, Ohio. Now, Ohio is very significant. And many uh, Democrats have uh, thought, you know, Ohio is uh, increasingly red. Uh, Tim Ryan had a surprisingly, you know, competitive uh, race there. And I uh, heard people saying, well, you know, why was that? And you can look no further than the congressional race in Akron, uh, Ohio 13, Amelia Sykes, who uh, ran and uh, won um, and beat a Trump endorsed candidate who during the campaign was standing with Trump just a, a dozen miles from Akron, um, in that very famous scene where many of the supporters were uh, throwing up, you know, kind of Heil Hitler type <laughs> type hand gestures. She was she was there and running um, in that district and um, millions of dollars of dark money in racist and sexist ads fueled by Kevin McCarthy's pack attacked Amelia Sykes, uh, attempted to weaken her. But what Amelia Sykes was able to do in the state was to uh, gather the multiracial group of voters and succeed in Akron. And now she is Congresswoman elect. And now that uh, the majority of the House is down to a few select races, our eye needs to be fixed on important races like in Akron, where Amelia Sykes just succeeded. The, the thing we need to learn right now is that uh, Ohio uh, and other battleground states uh, are not uh, just the future is not just Republican, that there are strong campaigns happening in the middle. And actually, Amelia Sykes is will make all three of the congressional representatives from Ohio black women. And that's significant in of itself. And could you talk about some uh, some uh, women of color who fell short and the lessons uh, uh, to be learned uh, from uh, last uh, last night's vote? Stacey Abrams, Sherry Beasley. Uh, what do you uh, uh, we have about 30 seconds? The heartbreaking loss of some of uh, the nation's best candidates, uh, Stacey Abrams, Val Demings in North Carolina, who fell short on her Senate bid and others demonstrate that the Democrats who who need to invest early and very, very strongly in these excellent candidates in order to uh, protect and build uh, up their capacity to turn out the votes, particularly in a midterm year. The lesson learned is for 24, invest early in the candidates who will uh, inspire the Democratic base women of color so that we can be successful next time around. 
Well, Amy Allison, I want to thank you for being with us, president and founder of She the People. You can visit democracynow.org to watch our three-hour election night special last night. Democracy Now! wants to also thank our executive director, Julie Crosby, who worked behind the scenes to make this all happen. We want to thank Renee Feltz and Mike Burke and Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warner, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe. <laughs>